Happy New Year. It's good to see everybody today, and if you're visiting with us today, we're really glad you're a part of our service. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. So... We all know who put that up there, right? <laughs> Children's church is in a few minutes, buddy. <laughs> all right, well, how do you recover from that? It's really good to be with you, and I uh, just want to make mention of a couple things this morning that uh, you will want to um, note. First of all, small groups begin uh, next Sunday night, and then the following Tuesday on the 11th, um, there are some handouts that you'll receive when you walk out the door uh, today, and I encourage you to consider small group uh, ministry. It's very important in, in your life, right? Some things um, I think we have to be reminded over and over again are good for us, and um, that's one of them because you're able to go from a larger setting to a smaller setting where you're able to be a little more intimate about your life, your walk with the Lord, the things that concern you, you're able to pray about those things, you're able to be in, in Bible study and, and kind of talk about the things going on in life and how to deal with these things. So I would just encourage you to consider the studies being offered and to sign up for those, to be a part of those. I know I, myself and my wife, uh, we enjoy, like right now we're in the college small group ministry and it's wonderful. I, I feel like I'm almost 20-something when I walk in there. I'm not really, but they, uh, they infuse some life into me. I really appreciate those guys. and So it's, just, it's good. It's good for us. It's healthy. It's healthy to be involved in small group ministry. I just really, really encourage you to pray about that and consider that uh, as you leave uh, today. I also wanted to make mention this morning of uh, just give you an update of our, uh, our receipts concerning the building. And what's been taken in, uh, what was taken in the month of December. In the month of December um, alone, we received almost $97,000 toward the building. Um, our current loan balance is $127,000. Um, I mean, the Lord has just been amazing in the way He's provided. Uh, and in the month of December, uh, not only in terms of building, was there a tremendous blessing, but our missions uh, was uh, collected over $12,000 for the month of December and general fund over 39000 That's in addition to the 97000 that was given uh, toward the building. So it's amazing how God's, God just works through his people to give. One of the things I really have appreciated and enjoyed about Springville Road and Grace uh, over the years has been the fact that we don't pass a plate, that we believe God's people do give. And so if you're visiting with us or you've been coming for a short time, you're like, why don't they do that? <laughs> we just, we're just trusting the Lord that God's people are going to give. And, um, and that's a blessing. You know, it's a blessing. And I just encourage you to um, just continue to pray along with the elders and the deacons about... Um, closing out that loan on the building in the next couple of months. I really believe the Lord can provide that for us. We want to focus our attention, our monies, more on missions and more on ministry. That will allow us to do that. And so you just pray along with us, and we just thank the Lord publicly 
for uh, what he's doing. So thank you, Lord. Um, this morning, I wanted to uh, read some verses from 1 John. So I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. This is a book that we'll be in for I don't know how long. But you know what? It really doesn't matter because we should have on our minds that when the Lord comes from us, we don't want to be ashamed. Wouldn't it be great if he, he found us in the Word when He came for us? He found us on our knees when He came for us. So this morning we want to read the first four verses of First John. I'm going to ask that you would stand as I read the first four verses of First John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And may the Lord bless His holy word. Let's uh, pray uh, together. Father, simply stated this morning, we want you to receive all the praise and all the honor and all of the glory that is due your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Morning. Or said Happy New Year, but we can say it again, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, the video that we just saw talked about peace in the new year. And as believers, we know that we can have peace in the new year, right? The world is not going to give us that peace. You know, it says leaders are going to rise, going to fall, nations are going to do what they're going to do, people are going to do what they're going to do, lost people are going to do what they're going to do. But only through God, only through who He is and through His blood, can we have the hope for the new year. Amen. And so that's what I want us to do. You don't sound enthused this morning, but, uh, but I want us to sing about the hope in the new year. We're going to sing Christ, our hope in life and death. Let's sing together. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our hope?
His hope is come. 
this morning. My faith has found a resting place. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me Enough for me that Jesus saves. Enough for me you listen to the words of the choir as they sing along that same thing. It talks about the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ speaks for me. We can't speak for ourselves. Salvation by no other name is what we, what we just sang about. But the blood of Christ is what speaks for us. So listen to the words as they sing.
I have ushers coming to get you as we speak. <laughs> nah. Have you ever looked at something someone was doing and said, that looks easy to do? I think probably all of us have been there where we've thought a game didn't look that difficult when sitting from the bleachers. Um, We thought, oh, I could do that pretty simply. Um. Years ago, we went on a youth retreat, and we were going to go skiing. And um, it was an awful trip. Not only were the accommodations not exactly what we were thinking, um, but we went skiing. We went ice skiing is what it was. We were in North Carolina, and it was just ice and when you're attempting to learn to ski, you need good powder, not ice. And we went skiing. And those of us who had never skied, we had an instructor. And that instructor showed us how to stop and how to turn and how to go and all that kind of thing. And I thought, I don't need all that. I mean, I know what to do. And so... We advanced, some of us, to the bunny slope, which is for the preschool skiers. And um, we went to the top of that short hill. And I had perfected everything except stopping, which is a problem. And so I'm going down the bunny slope. And I could not turn. You're supposed to turn your skis in. My ankles didn't want to cooperate. My, my, my shoes were not doing what I needed them to do. And all I could see in front of me were three old ladies. And there they went. I wiped them all out. One, two, and three. There's not a whole lot you can say when that happens. It almost seems um, just like, uh, what do you say? You're sorry, right? Is that really enough? I mean, the words just did not come. So it looked easy, but it was a little more difficult. But if you've been on the other side where you're trying to teach someone and they think it's easy and you have a pretty good understanding of what you're doing and you're trying to teach them, but they already think they know. Well, I was kind of like that when I skied, but in terms of teaching, I like to play golf, and I'm pretty decent at it, and I've had people in the past come to me and say, Thad, I want to learn to play golf, which I always kind of, they don't see this part, but my eyes are kind of going in the back of my head thinking, this is not going to work. They don't know it's not, but I can't say no, so I say, sure, I'll be happy to help you. And I've been on occasions where... um, I'll just use New York State as an example. His name was Rick Brewster. He was one of our deacons. He said, Thud, I need you to teach me to play golf. I'm like, okay, Rick, sure. So we go to this little par three course and it's driving range, and 
I start showing him how to hold the club and and uh, we get on the first little par three hole and he said, I said, Rick, you need to keep that grip like I showed you. He said, that just doesn't feel right. I was like, yeah, but, but that's the way you grip the club. Well, that just doesn't feel right. I'm going to do it this way. So he played the first hole in like 18 strokes, it seemed like. And we get, we get to the green and I'm trying to show him about putting. And I said, look, you're, with, with, if you're out 20 feet or so. You're not trying to make the putt. You're trying to get within a three-foot radius. Why? I said, because you want a two-putt. You don't want a three- or four- or five-putt. And so all through that round, it was, Dad, show me. But then he really didn't want to show me. He didn't really want me to show him. He just wanted to do it the way he wanted to do it. So it was like, what's the point? Golf is a hard game, and skiing is difficult. And so are some books of the Bible. First John is a difficult book, but I think it's been made difficult. That's just my opinion. You're going to come through the book, and you're going to agree with me, or you're going to disagree with me, and that's okay. I, I'm all right with that. But one of the things that I am very comfortable with is allowing God's Word to speak. Just pulling it out. What does the Word of God say? What does 1 John tell us? There are two big views of 1 John. Some say it's a relational book, relationship. It's about knowing if you belong to the Lord or not. And it's like an exam, a personal exam. And if you do these things, then you belong to Christ. And then there's the fellowship view which says that what John is doing is talking to those who belong to Christ and talking to them about how one maintains fellowship, intimacy with the Lord. That's my view. I believe a lot of people get hung up on that first view um, and make it to where... Christians look at this and come away going, well, I have to work at this and work at that and work at this and work at that. And it's no longer about faith, it's about works. And so, which is disturbing from my perspective as I have gone through and studied and looked at First John. Um, I want to, this morning, take you through some just general um, findings as an introduction to 1 John that are very key so that all along the way, if you have questions or you want to talk with me, that's great. I'm just going to give you a note sheet every week and you can take your own notes. At the end of the chapters, I will give you my notes. I'll give you everything I got, okay? But I don't want you to spend um, all your time trying to write down the things that I'm going to give you I'd really like it if you just kind of listened. And I know that's a discipline. Some people like to, to take notes, and I'm not discouraging you from doing that. Do that. But I think it's important that we all kind of say, Lord, help us, because this is a difficult book. And we want to understand better what you want for us as Christians. Um, I like what J. Vernon McGee says about, well... Like what he says about First John, what he did. He says, I've written in my Bible under First John another statement. 
dwelling in the place of the Most High. That speaks about intimacy. That speaks about a shared life. And that's the nuts and bolts of 1 John is a shared life. And the key to maintaining that closeness with the Lord Jesus. And so I like his focus on that. Um, I wanted to talk this morning about the author John, first of all. Who was John? Because you won't find his name in this book other than the heading. The first letter of John. And I believe that John did write the letter. And there are two primary arguments for that. And you need to understand those arguments. First of all, there's the argument of the early church fathers. Like that affirmed that John the Apostle wrote the book. Like Irenaeus and Tertullian. Those along with others advanced the fact that indeed John the Apostle wrote this letter. It's also true that another argument would be the style of writing of John, the language that's used. And when you compare that language to the language of the gospel of John, then you come out and you have to go, well, that looks a lot like the way John wrote. So when you compare those letters, there's a lot of similarity. In fact, a lot of what John talks about Um, you can go back to the Upper Room Discourse and you're going to see a lot of things that the Lord Jesus talked to His disciples about. It's believed that John wrote this book between 95 and 100 A.D. It's believed that it was actually his last letter that he wrote. You say, hold on a second, there's the book of Revelation. Yeah, but chronologically is what I'm talking about. And... It's one of those books where, we'll talk about it in a few moments, but who's the book written to? Who are the recipients of this letter? Um, Some make an argument that because chronologically it's the last letter they believe John wrote, then he wrote to these churches that were in Asia Minor, at least those. And we know that John was a part of the church at Ephesus. So... That's the dating of the book. Um, Those are a couple of the arguments as to why it would be John that wrote the book. But who was this man? Because I would like to argue this man had a front row seat in the life of Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it must have been like to walk with the Lord Jesus those three and a half years and be as up close as John was? To see and experience things that some of the other disciples did not experience and see and hear. I think that's why the book has the tone of a father, a spiritual father writing to his children. Think about this. If you, if you, only, if you knew you only had about a month or so to live, how special would it be for you as a grandfather to write a letter to those you loved, to your kids and to your grandkids. And what would be the things that you would talk about? Would it be your golf game, right? Would it be the the cars that you've owned, the boats that you have, 
or would you get to the nuts and bolts of Christian living and the Christian life? I would hope that it would be the Christian life and Christian living and how much Jesus Christ has been a part of my life as I'm here on earth. Hey, kids, grandkids, there's a lot of great things in life. There are a lot of fun things to do, and there's nothing wrong with all those things. But Jesus Christ is the reason for every single day that we get up. I think that's kind of how John writes to these Christians. And he's just, he's just being a spiritual father. And he's writing about things that pertain to being intimately related to Jesus Christ, which he was. Not only spiritually, but physically, he got to be beside him in a lot of, a lot of ways. Who was John? First of all, he was a fisherman. When you look at the ones that Jesus chose to be his disciples, would you choose these guys? I mean, think about it. They weren't exactly in the top ten lists, but he was a fisherman. He was a blue-collar worker. He stunk. Okay, he was, he was a grimy kind of guy. You know, I mean, he was just a get-dirty. His father had a fishing business, and he was part of that business. The Bible tells us that not only was he a fisherman, but he was called by the Lord, Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. That word called means to invite. He invited John and James, the sons of Zebedee, to walk with him. He had already invited Simon and Andrew to walk with him. And what did he told Simon and Andrew? I'm going to make you become what? Fishers of men. You've been fishing for fish, but now you're going to fish for men. Did they stop fishing for fish? I don't think so. It was their livelihood. But hey, along with fishing for fish, you're going to fish for men. What a great mindset for us. You may have an occupation, but as, and you're in that occupation. Listen, you do that job, but you're fishing for men as you do that job. That's the responsibility of the believer. The Bible says he called them, them being James and John. And they, I, I, you know, how many times have you read this passage? And I'm like reading it this week and studying. I'm like, they just left their father. Where are they leaving? In the boat. They left him. So the language that Jesus speaks with about in that culture, in that time, being a follower of his you have to be willing to leave father, mother, sister, brother. You're like, whoa, I mean, here's an actual, <laughs> right, example of that. He called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And they went away to follow him. And that's what they did. They followed the Lord Jesus. Um, we also see that not only was he a fisherman and called out, but the Bible tells us he was part of the Lord's inner circle. You know, when you think about the apostles, the disciples, you think about Peter, James, and who? John. Peter, James, and John. And there were times within the life and ministry 
of the Lord Jesus that he called away separately Peter, James, and John. And they, had, they, they were able to see and witness things the others did not see and did not hear. Can you imagine what that must have been like for the other disciples? I mean, because, right, I'm going to give you some examples. Hey, what went on in there? Hey, what did he say? Right, a lot of things. So when you think about, and when we think about the disciples, we think about all of them, but we think about, as the Scriptures tell us at times, it was just Peter, James, and John. Let me give you some examples He was present at the raising of Jairus' daughter, who was the official, right, the synagogue official in Capernaum, one of them. What had he seen? I want you to turn there. I was trying to get away from doing that all week long, but I can't. So I want you to go in your Bibles to Mark in the fifth chapter. I want to show you something here. Mark in the fifth chapter. This is one of the examples where Jesus takes a side... Peter, James, and John. It's the raising of Jairus' daughter. In verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, it says this, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. Circle that. There's a large group of people there. And so he stayed by the seashore. There were so many people. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet. Why? Do we know? We don't know the relationship that Jairus had with Jesus. I think we can assume that he knew of Jesus. He knew of the things that Jesus has, had done. He even may have heard some of the things Jesus had said because he was a synagogue official. He evidently believed that Jesus could do something, right? Because hey, no one else could, but hey, they got this Jesus guy. And so the Bible says, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. As he went off with him, a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So you have this picture of this man coming to Jesus, saying, Look, my daughter's at the point of death. Come and and help her. And the Bible says there's this large crowd and they're pressing in on him. And then there's another miracle that takes place before he goes to Jairus' house. The Bible tells us in verse 25, there was a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had endured a lot of pain. So she comes up and she touches the cloak, the hem of Jesus. The Bible tells us, that in verse 29, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Verse 30 says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
Bible says, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? And this is kind of funny to me. And you say, who touched me? Like, oh, there's so many people. What are you talking about? He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Okay, so in the midst of this, so you have him crossing over the other side. You have Jairus, the synagogue official, approaching him, saying, hey, my little daughter's sick to the point of death. Come and heal her so she'll live. And then you still have this big, huge crowd, and they're pressing in, and this woman with a blood problem comes, and she touches the garment of our Lord, and he heals her. But there's still Jairus, and there's still the daughter. Uh Oh, it's too late, right? No, it's not. It says, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? In other words, hey, no hope. She's dead. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Well, that's a, isn't that a great little phrase for us about life? Don't fear, believe. And how many things come up in our lives where we have to say, hey, don't fear. The enemy wants us to fear, right? But the Bible tells us we've not been given a spirit of fear and timidity. Power. We don't have to fear. We're human. We're going to. But... He said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to accompany him except who? Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now you might say, why in the world does he say it like that? Who wrote the gospel of Mark? John Mark did. He wrote the gospel of Mark. And so he's distinguishing here for us. He said, He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Who was able to go in there when Jesus raised her? Peter, James, and John. John was able to witness the raising of Jairus' daughter. Not all of them were there. Only Peter, James, and John. So he witnessed something that only two others witnessed in the raising of Jairus' daughter. He was present at the transfiguration. He was present... At the transfiguration. Oh, no, hold on a second. I don't have that in there for you. Why don't I have that in there for you? There it is. Out of order. Okay? He was present. Hold on a second. Yeah. Okay, that is the right order. He was at the transfiguration. John was. Matthew's gospel tells us that. I have the Mark scripture here. But, no, that's the transfiguration. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm sorry, I've got different in my notes. Making sure this is the 
uh, correlating passage. Yeah, it is. Um, it's right here. So, he's present at the transfiguration along with Peter and James. The Bible tells us that six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. What does that mean? Wayne Barber says, the personal appearance of the Lord changed into a glorified form. That's what it means. And who was there with them? Who was with Peter, James, and John? Not only the Lord Jesus, but who? Moses and Elijah. The Bible tells us he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Have you ever read through that and looked at Peter's response? What did Peter want to do? You know what he says? He says to the Lord Jesus, it's good for us to be here. Wouldn't you have the same reaction? I mean, right, you're on this mountain, and the Lord's transfigured, and there's Moses and Elijah, and you're like, hey, this is a good place to hang out. The Bible tells us that's what he says to Jesus. He says, it's good for us to be here. Let's stay a while. I'm going to build three dwelling places, three tabernacles for you, Lord, and for Moses and for Elijah. But John was there, and he saw and he heard things that only James and Peter were able to testify of, none of the other disciples. He said, well, why does that matter? When you get to the opening part of 1 John, it matters, right? They handled him. They touched him. They saw him. He was real. So the Bible tells us that John was at the transfiguration. He was also in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. The Bible tells us, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, which was at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. What kind of time was this for our Lord Jesus? An agonizing time. The Bible tells us he was distressed. He was deeply grieved. Notice what... It says in Matthew 26, He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who were James and John. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So Peter, James, and John were there at one of the most grievous times in the life of our Lord Jesus. One of the most distressing times they were there. Peter, James, and John. John, the disciple. Well, there's also another time in our Bibles where John is present, but it doesn't tell us about James, and we know that Peter has run away, and it's at the cross. The Bible tells us in John chapter 19 that John was at the cross with who? the mother of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, 
woman, behold your son. As I mentioned before to you a couple of weeks ago, the term woman is a term of endearment. It's a term of great respect. So it's not like I heard a minister one time say, even the Lord got sassy with his mom. It's not like that at all. It was all I could do not to stand up and say, you're wrong. That's not my Lord, right? Imagine doing that at a wedding. That was the context. It was a wedding. And she said, even our Lord liked to be sassy. I thought, man, go study. I did go up afterwards and talk to her about it. I was nice about it, but I said, ma'am, I said, I just have to tell you something. I said, um, when you said that the Lord Jesus was even sassy with his mother, do you know what that term is? She didn't know. Those were tough things. You know, Paul wasn't a shy guy when it came to truth. Those are hard things to do, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to, and I did it, I think, in a way that honored him. But here we're at the foot of the cross with, with John and, and, and with, with Jesus' mother, and he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. In other words, he's transferring responsibility. He loved his mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household, and we know that to be the case. So he was at the cross. And then lastly, there's another thing about John that um, we need to know. He wrote about 20% of the New Testament. You ever thought about that? He wrote a good little bit. When you think about what John wrote, and I've broken it down. I want to just share it with you. It's just something the Lord put on my heart, and I don't know how you're going to see it, but when I look at the, the letters that that um, John wrote, he wrote the gospel of John. And what's the gospel of John about? Salvation. It's about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's what the gospel of John is about. It's about how one is saved. How is one saved? Believe in God's Son and what He did for you on the cross. And so, as you look at the Gospel of John, it's a book about salvation. As you look at the book of the Revelation, which John wrote, I've summed it up that it's a book about glorification. There are other things that go on, I understand that, within the framework of the Revelation. But it begins with a picture in chapter 1 of the glory of Jesus, and it ends... The book ends with a picture of us being in the presence of the one who is glorious. So I look at that letter that he wrote, and while there's a lot of information there, it's a lot about glorification. It's a lot about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what is yet to come. And then there are three little books little letters, two of them no bigger than a postcard. How many of you have read 2nd and 3rd John? 
How many of you know that there's a second and third John? If you read the three letters, the three little epistles there, first and second and third John, I think and I believe they fall under the heading of sanctification. So when you think about what John was privileged to write, he wrote about salvation, he wrote about sanctification, and he wrote about glorification. <laughs> I mean, does it get better than that? Luke wrote a big majority of the New Testament. When you count the words, you would see that. Um, Paul actually comes in second place when you count the words. Obviously, he wrote 13 books in the New Testament, but a lot of them are pretty short. Have you read Luke and Acts lately? Those are pretty long books. So the Bible tells us that John was the author, we believe, of three epistles that we, one of which we're going to look at over the next several weeks uh, together. All right, so that's a little bit about the author, John. I want to talk a little bit about the recipients. Who received this letter? In one word, I'm going to say Christians. Okay, that's how I boiled it down. Christians received this letter that was written. One of the arguments that I would make about that is the pronouns. I like pronouns. You like pronouns? My mom was an English professor. She taught... English in high school when I was a boy. I was not allowed to say the word ain't. Anytime my sister and I said that word, we were in trouble. It was not proper English. I say ain't a good bit. I'll even say it every once in a while from here. But my mama, she catches it. In fact, the times that she was at the church, she would say, Dad, you said ain't today. Yes, ma'am. I know. It's all right, Mom. It wasn't all right with mom. She was an English teacher in high school. And then when they moved to Arkansas, my mom and dad, in 1989, she went to work for two universities in the state of Arkansas. She was an English professor. So she went from teaching high school kids to teaching college students. She cared a little bit about grammar. So I, I don't know if I get it from my mom. I guess that's okay, though, right? Um, when I look at the book of 1 John, I don't just believe the pronouns as it relates to Christians in the context are important, but when he refers to they, those who aren't a part of us, those pronouns are critical to understanding, in my viewpoint, the difference between a book written about relationship and written about fellowship. That's just my viewpoint. So I'm just giving you, right, you can study along with me, and if you have a different viewpoint, and that, that'll be fine. We can just sit down and I actually drink coffee now. We can actually, we can talk about it as long as we have some uh, caramel vanilla creamer. Have you ever tried it? Some of my friends call it sissy coffee. But it's not really. It just tastes really good. And I think it's good for my heart as well. So I just want to give you an example of some of the pronouns. And we're going to come to this verse and break it down. But look at this verse specifically, verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has given who? Us. That we would be called children 
of God. And in fact, we what? Are. <laughs> that's, that's like right. I don't know how much more clear John need to make it. We are. Who is? Those who belong to Christ. We are. John says we are. For this reason the world does not know who? Us. So there's a distinction there between the world and us. Because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Look at this next verse. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Who's going to be like him? Believers. We are. Because we will see him just as he is. So the pronouns throughout the book, and I'll point them out as we go through, give evidence to me that the recipients of this letter indeed are Christians. Um, And I haven't even given you the greatest verse of the whole book yet in terms of that. Not only are pronouns key in the book, but titles, what I've referred to as titles, the way he refers to them throughout the letter. He calls them my little children several times. He calls them beloved, which is one of his favorite terms. He calls them children. He calls them children of God. And so there are several titles that you're going to see as we work our way through the book that are going to help us to understand who indeed John is writing to. Um, And then also there are purposes that tell us, um, that's how I've titled it, purposes that tell us who John indeed is writing to. Um, I believe there is a primary purpose verse. And, and again, look guys, I mean, I'm just one teacher. You, you, several people might say, well, I don't agree with this, but okay, that's fine. Um, as I've studied it, I believe 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 is the key verse to understanding why John wrote to these believers. And I I hesitated to name it the primary, but I don't know any other way to distinguish it. I would say there's one one and one A. (laughs) There's primary and secondary, but they're really close together. But notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 John. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Why? That word proclaim means to declare. We declare this to you. Who is you? Believers. That you too may have fellowship with us. We're going to come to see that that term fellowship means a shared life. Isn't it special that you and I, right? We might not see each other as believers in a physical manner. Let's say I didn't see you for 10 years. I've got an example, and I don't think she's going to care. She's sitting right here. Her name's Melissa Payne. I hadn't seen her. I don't know when it was. But I walk up. There's a a spirit there, right? We have a common spirit. It's built around who? Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how long it's been. So this fellowship piece, this shared life issue, John wanted them 
to understand what that was. He talks about the key components to that throughout the book. So he says, I declare this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I have a question for you. When is the last time that you considered your shared life with Christ? I want you to think about that. I mean, that's a really important question. When was the last time you considered your shared life with Christ? You know, a lot of people go around and they'll say, do you belong to the Lord? Those are good questions. That's a good question. Do you know that you know that you know? That's a great question. But at some point in our Christian life, we have to get beyond the relationship which we love and appreciate to the fellowship aspect as a believer that the Lord wants us in close proximity to Him. Do you agree with that? He wants us in close proximity to Him. He wants us to understand what a shared life is. How does that look? That's exactly what I think John's given to his children here. This is how that looks. And these are the things that can keep you from that intimacy. And there are things, as you know, full well, that can keep us from that intimacy that we need with the Lord. And so that's what I believe the primary purpose is of the book, as written from John's perspective. There are secondary purposes, and I want to give those to you uh, quickly this morning. I'm just going to highlight them, because we're going to come back and break down the text, obviously, so I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I do want to introduce you to them. The first one has to do with joy. Joy is linked to fellowship in verses 3 and 4. We just read 3, and it says in verse 4, These things we write so that our, what, joy may be made complete. So, one of the reasons that John writes is to talk about the importance of joy in the Christian life. In other words, he's saying in practice, we need to walk with joy. Can we walk with joy? Absolutely we can. Can we walk with joy in the midst of difficult circumstances? Absolutely we can. John wasn't the first one to talk about this. He said, well, who else talked about it? The one he hung out with. The Lord Jesus talked about the issue of joy in the context of the upper room discourse. As the Lord's talking with his disciples. And remember at this point in John 15, and this is very important because it happens back in John 13, Judas is out of the room, he's gone. So now who's in the room? Those that belong to him. These things, he says, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be, what? In you and that your joy may be made, what? Full. Gee, that looks a lot like What's written here in 1 John. And so one of the secondary purposes, 1A purposes, is to address the issue of joy in the life of a believer. How many times have you used the phrase or heard the phrase, rob me of joy? People use that all the time. I don't want to be robbed of my joy. I've got great news for you. You don't have to be, ever. In the midst of the most dire circumstance, guess who's there with you? The Lord Jesus. See? So, 
It doesn't matter what the terrain is. It may be a, a really high mountain. I may be going through some really rapid waters in my life, but who's in the rapid waters and on the climbing the mountain with me? The Lord. The Lord is. It's not language that's unfamiliar to others in the New Testament. In fact, Paul tells the believers in Philippi to do what? Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. I don't have to rejoice in my circumstance. Right? My stomach was really bothering me this morning. I did not go, yeehaw! But I can have joy in the Lord, right? No matter what the circumstances. That's a very small and somewhat insignificant illustration. But you may be going through times with your children that are difficult. Even grown children. That happens, doesn't it? Times with your parents. Maybe it's an illness. You know what? I believe that concentration on this is critical for us. Because we're going to go through, in a day's period of time, so many circumstances that would want to move us away from the joy that we have in knowing Christ. The joy that we can experience as we walk with Him. The second secondary issue that he deals with, I say secondary in quotes, is um, purity. Purity. And I, would, I put the phrase next to it, walk remaining pure. Notice what he says to them in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Who sins? All sin. We know the world they, is constant, but believers do what? Sin. Now, the great news, right, if he just said, <laughs> I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, period, done. And you'd be like, Whoo, wow, that's hard. But notice what he does as a father, as a spiritual father. He says, hey, here's good news. If anyone sins, and we all sin, we have what? An advocate. One that speaks on our behalf. <laughs> Hallelujah. One who was what? Tempted and tried in all points, just as we are yet without sin. We have an advocate, one that speaks on our behalf. The Lord wants us to be pure in our ways. That is a hindrance to fellowship, sin is. Sin's a hindrance to that fellowship. John not only writes about it, but Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 4, about this issue of purity. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of Philippians. And there's a lot of great ones. But he says, Finally, brethrens, uh, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, what does he say? Think about these things. It's stronger than that. Because when we say, hey, you need to think about this to our teenagers... Go to your room and think about this. How long do we expect that to happen? They're going to think about it for the next hour? You'll be good to get a minute out of them, right? Go, and think, go to your room and think about what you just did. That's not what we're talking about. The word think there is the word dwell. It's the idea of taking up residence. Okay, that's a little bit different. 
When's the last time you told your kid, go take up residence and think about what you've done, right? You, you don't do that. That's the point here. Dwell on these things. What things? The things that I just wrote about. So there's an element in 1 John that's about purity. There's an element in 1 John that is about affirmation. Being confident about something. Now here's something very interesting. Verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, I am writing to you little children. Okay? I'm writing to you little children because your sins have what? Been forgiven you for his name's sake. Who are we talking about? Who's forgiven? Believers are forgiven. In fact, it's interesting, the word there, children, in verse 12 in the Greek is a different word than the word children in verse 13. We'll talk about that because it's important. But the word children in verse 12 speaks of one who is deeply loved. The word uh, children in verse 13 is a different word. It has to do with a child who is under training. There's a difference. We'll get to that when we come to chapter 2. Well, there's all kinds of scriptures we could go to about forgiveness. In Colossians 1.14, it says at the end of the verse, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he wants them to be confident they've been forgiven. That's a key component in a shared life. And then he writes about discernment. This is a pretty hefty discussion, but when we get there, you're going to really enjoy it, I think. He writes about the importance of discernment, and that discernment piece is linked in 1 John to those who were deceivers. Those who were deceivers. And notice the way... That he words it. Children is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist, singular, we will talk about this when we get there, is coming. Even now many Antichrist, plural, have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, there was a problem starting to stir in the church in the late first century. And mostly in the second century. But Gnosticism was starting to have its influence in the church. And so John writes about a little bit of that in this letter. He says, Even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour they went out from us. They weren't a part of us. They would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And then as we continue the reading, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you what? Do know it. Who's he talking to? Believers. <laughs> and because no lie is of the truth. So walk being discerning. There's a passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says, Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine what? Examine a few things. Is that what he says? Examine what you want to examine. Is that what he says? No, he says examine everything. Hold firmly to that which is good 
abstain from every form of evil. If you want an example, which you do, be like the Bereans who examined everything carefully, Acts 17. That word abstain there, we'll talk about it when we get to it, but it means to stay away. <laughs> stay away from every form of evil. Here's what people like to do at times. Get their foot wet. Please don't do that. Stay away. That's the instruction. That's a command there. Stay away from every form of evil, young people. And I want to tell you this, young people. I don't mean this in any condescending way. You know how much I love you. One of the things that happens is going to happen in your life as you get older is you're going to become more discerning, hopefully. And you're going to understand why your parents bugged you to death about who you hung out with. You're going to go, oh, yeah, they loved me and they cared about me. And these people, they, they don't have a view of God. They don't have a view of Christ like the Scriptures. So the next time you think, my parents are just mean. No, they love you. And they're just trying to help you. And discernment is something that's, that comes with time. That whole wisdom piece. So then the, the last one, secondary, I hate calling it secondary, but the last one is the issue of assurance. And to me, this, this verse alone just, I mean, it's like it just swallows First John. He says, these things I have written to you who believe. These things I have written to you who what? Believe. These things I have written to you who what? Believe. In the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wanted them to know. How many of you want to know you belong to Christ? Sure, all of us do. I know I do. I know at salvation what happened to me. I didn't know at seven all the ramifications. But I know I've been placed into him. I know I've been sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. I know all those things. And so it's not on me, it's on him. And this is not new language. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me might have eternal life. Is that what it says? No. Has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. I like what D.L. Moody says. We'll close with this. And I got one story. We're done. D.L. Moody says, it is our privilege to know that we're saved. Huh, not good. How do you know? How do you know you belong to the Lord? When you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from your sins, guess what happened? When you do that, when you receive Him, what happens? You're saved. And here, here's the thing. We live in a culture, and this is very unfortunate, that says, yeah, but you might not be saved unless this, 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 and this is true. So then that becomes what works. That becomes a work salvation. It's based on me maintaining my righteousness. Why do my righteousness, the Bible, according to the Bible, is, is what? Filthy rags. When I trusted in God's Son, and what he did for me on the cross, I was immediately dressed with the righteousness of Christ. 
It's His righteousness. It's not mine. It is a privilege to know that we are saved. And I love the word held. Why are we saved by Him? We're held by Him. He is the Lord who holds those that are His. And guess what's not going to happen? He's not letting go of any of us. We can't break through. See, He's going to hold us. We can't break the lock. He's got us. You ever played Red Rover when you were a kid? Is that just an ancient game? I loved Red Rover. When I was growing up in southwest Louisiana um, in the 1970s, we played outside all the time. And we had to come in when the street light came on. I think the parents got together and said, that's the rule. If you were five minutes late, you got beat. I mean, I think that was just the whole, we agree to that. And so, but one of the games that we found ourselves playing over and over and over again, boys and girls, we had a girl on our street, her name was Susie. She was a tomboy. I mean, she just, she loved playing tackle football. But one of the games that we played was Red Rover, Red Rover. And I just loved when my name was called because I was fast. I wasn't very strong, but I was fast. I was going to break through. But you ever played Red Rover when there were two big kids? Right? And they're holding and you bounce off of them and you can't break through. Listen to me. The Lord Jesus, if you belong to him, you're wrapped in his righteousness. And no one can break through and take that from you. I don't know about you, but when a father, a spiritual father, writes to children, listen to me, there's nothing better you could write. I've written these things that you may know. So as we work our way through 1 John, I hope that it's encouraging to you as a believer as you think about the shared life that you have with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know um, how that came out today. I don't know. I just know that I've enjoyed my time with you. And I know you're going to stretch me a lot more than you're probably going to stretch these guys. But I, it's because I need it the most. Lord, I, I love your word. Most of all, I love you. I'm thankful that you have given us your word that we might look to it for our guidance. I pray, Lord, that as we think about this shared life that we have with you, if we indeed are in Christ, that we would think about these key components to maintaining fellowship. That we would understand that there is an enemy ever working trying to distract us from the important things in life. God, help us to be warriors who are committed to you. Help us to know that the fellowship that, that we can enjoy is something you want for us. Thank you for all the many blessings that we have if we know you. If there's anyone today that doesn't, I pray that today they could come to know that you loved them so much that you died for them. You paid the penalty of their sin.
pray, Lord, that you would help us as we journey through this wonderful book. Help us to be ever reliant on you. Especially me, Lord, that you would help me to be ever reliant on what your word says. Thank you so much for our time together. And all this I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. That was a wonderful segue into our closing song today. The song that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sing it, but if you can sing along with me, I would love it. Um, written by a man, Stephen Curtis Chapman, that you know, and many of you know. And of the ministry that he has had for years and years and years, the wonderful things that God has used him one of the things that you remember him for is that he and his wife early in his ministry and lost their young daughter to a tragic accident. And I saw him on the TV not long, not too long ago. And they asked him, he says, of all the music that you have written and done, shared with, what's one of your favorites? Could you just name this one of your favorites? And he says that by far... This one early on had to be, it says, my, my Redeemer is faithful and true. And he's one that would share with you today that no matter what the circumstances, we can, we can expect in this world things not to go the way that we want to sometimes. But we know for a fact, and one thing I, one, one thing I like the way John says in First John, when he talks about knowing a lot. <laughs> But we can know that our Redeemer is always going to be faithful and he's always going to be true. When the whole world falls apart around us, our Redeemer will remain faithful and true. If you know the song, please sing along with me and um, let's just worship together with us. As I travel on this road I travel I see so many times He's carried me through And if there's one thing that I've learned in this life My Redeemer is faithful and true My Redeemer is faithful and true Everything He has said He will do. And every morning His mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. My heart rejoices when I read the promise. There is a place that I'm preparing for you. I know someday I'll see my Lord face to face. My Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything He has said He will do. And every morning... His mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. 
And in every situation he has proved his love to me When I lack the understanding He gives more grace to me My Redeemer is faithful and true Everything he has said he will do Every morning his mercies are new My Redeemer is faithful and true My Jesus is faithful and true Thank you, Ron. I like him just singing it. I didn't have to sing it. I really appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to make mention of something we're going to do in February. I haven't decided on a date yet, but um, we're going to have baptism in February. And so if you're a believer and you have not been baptized, um, but you believe the Lord wants you to be, which he does, <laughs> his word's clear about that, um, it's, it's the point of identification with Christ. Tells others you belong to him. There's, there's so many things there to consider, but I would really appreciate you praying about that, considering that for this month, and then in February, one of those Sundays, we will have baptism, and uh, hopefully, as a church, be able to witness those who have come to Christ and who want to to follow Him with their life. So, uh, it's great to see you today, and I hope you have a, a good day. And again, Happy New Year to you, and hope to see you next week. Um, what is that saying? Here, there, in the air. So I hope you know. All right. You're dismissed. <laughs>